0: Old-timey, cry (laughs) me. I am Christy. And I'm Amber. And we're continuing our adventures in making our intro into a uh, late 90s college answering machine. Yep. (laughs) Here in the dorm room, with our
1: 40s of cheap beer. And our tie-dye tapestry on the wall. (laughs) We do, in fact, have blankets on the wall. It's for, you know, soundproofing, but still.
0: We should make one of them tie-dye. I had a tapestry on my wall. I remember. So, we have a fascinating, bonkers wild tale for you this week. Oh my gosh, we've got so many anonymous letters, just so many anonymous letters just flying back and forth through the mail to people, informing on people and threatening people. We've got a just really horrible, horrible man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And some, uh, relationships. Familial relationships that don't turn out too great. Creepy relationships. Yeah. So, before we get into that, don't forget about our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Link is in the show notes, as always. And you can come over there and find all of our offerings. We have over a hundred of our old, tiny crimeys, which are you know anywhere from 15 minutes to 45 minutes but lately it's been pretty standard at, at about half an hour mm-hmm. and what did i tell you about this week
1: uh we got some old-timey
0: news newspapers
1: and uh we played a fun guessing game and there was uh there was like a stabbing and a
0: funny rape story <laughs> and uh it, to clarify it wasn't actually funny, but the newspaper tried to make it charming. It, it fell flat.
1: And, yes. uh, and then we, we wrapped it all up with uh, an old-timey recipe.
0: Yes, we did. Yummy, yummy. Why did they eat these things? We don't know. Because so, everything's <laughs> better with Jello. <laughs> yes, apparently. And hard-boiled eggs. Yum. So, come on over there. We also have our monthly extra, extra bonus episodes. So, that's right. You get five bonus episodes Every month, and for our extra extra, which uh, should have come out this week, we did a timey after timey, where I one of us does an old crime, the other one does a new crime. They're on a theme, and we learned a lesson about the timey after timeies, where maybe you shouldn't pick one where the theme leads it to be incredibly grim. Yeah, it was pretty grim. Spree killers. There was there was a lot of grimness in there. So, but we uh, it was still. Fascinating. Yeah.
1: We found some silver linings
0: in our dark clouds. Yes. Ambers especially had some some brave kids. That was really heartening to see. So, yes. You should come over there and check us out. So much material you get and content you get access to immediately. All of it. So, just you can binge away. All right. Shall we get into the case of Mary Frances Creighton? Absolutely. She would eventually become known as the Black-Eyed Borgia or the Long Island Borgia, in reference to Lucretia Borgia. Uh, But she was born Mary Frances Avery in 1899 in New Jersey. In her 20s, the Daily News described her as, quote, a pretty woman of the Spanish type with dark flashing eyes and an olive complexion. She was the eldest, I think, of four children. I only saw it like really sketched out in one place. It seems like her sister, Helen, was five years younger. Her brother, Charles, was six years younger. And then there's a a youngest daughter of the family who seems to have kind of disappeared. She just was mentioned once and then never seen again. Probably died young. It, It happened. And speaking of, it also happened she lost her parents in her very early teens. And was taken in and informally adopted by the Creighton family in Newark. Both the Avery and the Creighton families were said to be good families in the style of the day. And the Avery kids came with some money. A grandmother had died a few years back and left $30,000 divided amongst the three grandchildren. That's about three quarters of a million today. Wowza. And so when her parents died suddenly, they left the estate to their son, the only son, Charles. So younger than her, but he still gets the estate. Because he has a penis. Exactly. It was written exactly like that in the will. So the Craytons had a son, John. He was only a year older than Mary, and he was going off to war. They started up a relationship that led to marriage when he came home on leave. Sounds romantic, but this union would later be described as she's described as a dominating personality and her husband is described as weak by the neighbors. We also have a lot of chatty neighbors in here and it's wonderful. Yes, (laughs) I love the chatty neighbors. Yeah, it seemed like they did not love her. Her known social aspirations attracted the enmity and disapproval of her neighbors, said the Daily News. I have so much material from the Daily News, so get ready. Her household actually also found that their belongings tended to disappear whenever Mary was around. She didn't get along well with her in-laws, John's parents, the Craytons. She had a bad temper, and she tended to be quite the tongue-wagger. She would join into the neighborhood rumor mill, but especially as concerned her in-laws. She was shit-talking them a lot. She liked to spill the tea. She really did. John was making $30 a week as a clerk, which has a relative income worth of $486 a week today, which comes out to about $25,000 a year. And uh, after they got married, uh, they had a busy few years. Busy, busy, busy. Very. They had their daughter, Ruth, in 1919. And then in December 1920, John's mother passed... And the death certificate listed it as a cerebral hemorrhage. She was 46. Then, in September 1921, less than a year after, John's father passed. He was only 48. Funny. Yeah, yeah. And since they were all living together, it seems like John inherited the house. He got the home they would live in together, as well as $16,000 in life insurance, which is $220,000 today. Wow. It's a nice, nice little haul from the untimely deaths of your in-laws. Pretty much immediately, Mary starts moving her family in. She brings in Charles, who was 16 at the time, and Helen, who was 18, and their grandmother. Although at one point, Mary and Helen had a quarrel, and Helen left. Helen said the quarrel was no big deal, but relatives say that they had a bad fight about money.
1: Yeah, it seems like Mary really liked money.
0: She really, really did. Speaking of which, in April 1923, her brother Charles got ill and then died at the age of 18. He had a $1,000 insurance policy and $2,500 estate remaining. And that's $56,000 today. And like I said, they were busy. In May 1923, just about a month after her brother Charles died, they had their son John, who came into the world just a few days after Mary and John were arrested for the first-degree murder of her brother Charles. And this baby was born right about the time that John's parents were exhumed due to suspicions of murder.
1: Yeah, that's a weird time to be born. (laughs)
0: Yeah, right? So, we've got one charge already for the most recent death, that of her brother Charles, and they're going literally digging for more evidence to use against her for the potential of more charges in the possible murders of her in-laws. And the press noted that Ruth, while Mary was in jail, was in the care of a family friend who was actually the commissioner of Kearney, New Jersey, or a commissioner. When this came out in the news, Mary and John Sr. were in their early 20s, had two small children, and the Daily News wrote it like this. Mrs. Mary Creighton is not just the pretty, card-playing, frivolous wife of a middle-class Newark clerk that her neighbors thought her, but an ogress who poisoned her own brother and the mother of her husband, the state of New Jersey contends. So what happened was, while her brother was sick, an anonymous letter was sent to the police. It noted that Charles was sick, and his symptoms were oddly similar to those that the elder Creightons experienced prior to their deaths. And then right after he died... Another letter was sent to the police that was like, hey, you know how I told you that he was sick and he had the same symptoms as they did? Well, guess what? He died. Like I said was going to happen. Might want to check into it. This letter was signed a friend of justice, by
1: a the way. friend of justice. Yes. I, I do like that. Well, they also had uh, a couple of the family dogs that passed in a very similar way, but I only saw that like glossed over.
0: Yeah, it wasn't discussed in any great length, but it seems like there was a bulldog and I believe it belonged to uh, Mr. Creighton. I'm going to go with Mr. and Mrs. Creighton for their parents just to avoid confusion. So Mr. Creighton loved this white bulldog and uh, it seems like it ended up in the backyard. And they did end up testing it for arsenic, <laughs> but it didn't actually test positive, so. Mary and Charles' family also reported to the police that Charles's symptoms were the same as the Mr. and Mrs. Creighton's. And that's, it. that's so similar of a report that I wonder if one of them, somebody related to Mary and Charles, was the anonymous tipster. We don't know. As far as I know, it, it's said in the papers that it's a woman, but I don't know how they know that unless they're, like, stereotyping handwriting. You could. You possibly could, especially considering that women were, you know, expected to do more correspondence, perhaps, on behalf of the family, so they might get more penmanship training. That would make sense. I mean, even
1: now, if I see a letter, I can usually tell you if it was a man or a woman.
0: Generally, yeah. yeah we, we, it, it's very strange how... Male and female handwriting differs. Yeah. It's, it's such a weird thing. The Craytons, both of them, Mary and John, were arrested and charged with first-degree murder. And two doctors, one on the defendant's side and one on the prosecution's side, did a chemical analysis of the elder, Mr. and Mrs. Creighton's organs, and did discover a crystalline white powder in Mrs. Creighton's stomach. And that powder contained... Arsenic. Detectives also removed 30 containers of medicine from the home after the indictment and planned to analyze them. But they had a specific potential source of the poisoning in mind. And that was a product called Fowler's Solution. It was like an oral supplement, uh, I believe in liquid form, that was supposed to help your complexion. You're just supposed to take a drop or two per day. But according to doctors, a teaspoon a day for 10 days would kill you. Yeah, that sounds like a medicine I would want to take. Yeah, yeah, really good medicine. It was uh, one much older article said that it was 1% arsenic. Oh. So, yes. Uh, I did go hunting for old newspaper ads for it, and instead, all I found were murder trials. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. It was a pretty frequently used uh, poison, essentially, of one article. I did find said it was good for horses, while strychnine was good for cattle. So, you know, if you get some beef, might get a a little side of strychnine in there. There you go. Yeah. And an article with the headline, Three men drink horse remedy for booze. Salisbury residents badly poisoned by Fowler's Solution. Concoction, mostly arsenic. So one of the men had both a bottle of booze and a bottle of Fowler's Solution. And he drank the wrong one, and so did his friends.
1: How do you not notice that you're drinking medicine and not alcohol?
0: They might have tasted very similar. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. It was uh, recommended in a doctor's column titled, How to Keep Well as a Good General Tonic, Especially After Malaria, and It Could Help with Neuralgia and Psoriasis. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So after I have malaria, let me just go
1: ahead and take a little arsenic every day.
0: Sounds great. Sounds great. Yeah. So yes, I found a bunch of murder trial articles about it and I just pretty much gave up on finding any actual advertisements. We could seriously do a whole mini series on fowler solution poisonings. And it was around for many, many years, like 50 years. So it was kind of a staple. You could buy it At any drugstore with no prescription.
1: Which is how so many people ended up dying from taking it. Pretty much, yeah. Like, (laughs) even now,
0: how many people actually read the back of their medicine labels? They knew that arsenic was poisonous, but at the same time, they also had this idea that it could help you. It might have helped with some things, but it hurt a lot more than it helped. I mean,
1: it would help you build a tolerance if your wife was trying
0: to poison you, I suppose. There's a possibility there, but you're, you're... walking on dangerous ground. (laughs) Yeah, I honestly wondered if they ever truly advertised or if they just relied on newspaper articles about murder trials to do their
1: advertising for them. It could go either way. I mean, it seemed pretty (laughs) popular with just the murder trials. I mean,
0: I guess uh, no press is bad press, even if it's murder press. So everybody was talking to the papers in the aftermath of the arrest John Creighton's aunt told the papers that Charles had complained, Charles the little brother who died, that all Mary would let him eat while he was sick was chocolate pudding. And physicians on the grand jury stated that chocolate pudding was the absolute best disguise for arsenic. And there you have it. There's some new knowledge. The neighbors were also talking to the press. None of it positive for Mary. Not, not one bit of it. Not a bit. So you had, uh, them saying that her brother was forced to act as a, quote, nurse girl and kitchen maid, end quote, scrubbing floors and washing the dishes and taking care of, yes, I wrote, baby Ruth. (laughs) And that was in addition to his job at the National Grocery Company. The neighbors also told the papers about that bulldog that we mentioned, Mary's sister, Helen, the one that she has the rift with, who moved out, she got chatty with the press. She said that Mary had sent her a letter letting her know about their brother's illness, and in the letter, Mary said it was kidney trouble. Helen wanted to go see what was going on, but she very much did not want to go to Mary's house, probably with good reason. She went to the neighbors, and from there she called the family doctor, whose name was Dr. Boyle. He said he'd never diagnosed Charles with kidney trouble, but said, you know, he's going to be fine in a few days. He'll be up and about. It's just a little illness. He'll be okay. Helen said she had gone to the funeral, but didn't see Mary or John Creighton acting weird at all, and the charges actually surprised her. I don't think she was telling the truth there. Nope. (laughs) Dr. Boyle was also talking to the press after the death, and he said that it took him by surprise. He did ask the undertaker not to embalm the body until they could get the county physician in to do an autopsy, but the undertaker, who was a friend of the Craytons, went and did it anyhow. Of course he did. He did say at least that he did not use arsenic in the embalming process, so there would be no confusion there. So the papers were focused on Mary, but remember, both of them were charged with this first murder charge. And Mary also had caught a charge of obtaining goods under false pretenses. It was said that she ordered some items from a department store under someone else's name and then refused to accept the delivery when it came. So I I don't know how she actually obtained them if she refused the delivery. That's, yeah, like...
1: That's like ordering a pizza under somebody's name and sending it to them. But no, she had them sent to herself. And then refused it. That's yeah. A, like, why? That's so weird.
0: I don't actually see where the crime was, but they never really followed up on it anyhow. So, <laughs> I Like, I never don't really even think. understand the why of it, though. Just so somebody else gets billed for it? I guess so, maybe. I mean, she didn't like a lot of her neighbors. So she didn't get along with them too well. Maybe she did it to, you know, piss somebody off.
1: I don't know why I'm hung up on that
0: part of this. (laughs) I know know. there's a lot to get hung up on and you choose that.
1: (laughs) Well, because, like, I understand the why of poisoning people for life insurance. I don't understand the why of ordering something just to be a
0: pain in the ass, I guess. I don't... Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but maybe she's just... Just a little agent of chaos. Perhaps. Okay. Moving on. Yeah. They both pled not guilty and stated that they would not be trying for an insanity defense. And the prosecution had them checked out by alienists anyway, and the alienists pronounced them sane. So we mentioned that after she was arrested, she then gave birth to her son, John Jr. She was taken to the hospital for the birth uh, about five days after the arrest. Baby John Jr. It came into the world and weighed about eight and three quarters pounds. There was some argument as to whether the baby would join her in jail in the days after the birth. The sheriff did not want the baby at the jail, but the doctor did not want mother and baby separated, and the doctor won in the end, so the baby went to jail.
1: I, you know, I think that's actually what they do now, though. Like, if you if you have a baby, they they let you keep the baby with you at least for the first few weeks because I mean, that's a really important part of a baby's life is to be with
0: the mother. There is, yeah, the the, the bonding and you know the, the oxytocin and all that you know hormones, fun stuff. Yes. <laughs> Not to mention breastfeeding, if it, if you know, if the mother is able. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense, but it's just it's it's made a lot of in the press. She had a bed a bassinet, and an adjoining bathroom. So she has a little suite. Oh, she got the Martha Stewart treatment. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Reporters after the birth were granted an interview with the new mother in jail, although her lawyer had barred them from asking any questions about the murder case. One of them, this this sly bastard, he tried to be really sneak it in there. Uh, He complimented her complexion. Oh. Yeah, the lawyer did not let that slip past. (laughs) He was like, nope, nope, nope. Because, you know, the Fowler solution could be a complexion aid. So he did not want Mary saying anything about her complexion.
1: Yeah, I was looking for an ad for a few minutes. Well, after you had said that, just because I was curious. And uh, that was a big thing. And I didn't find Fowler's, but I found a separate company that made arsenic wafers for female complexion. Oh, yes, yes. So I, like, that was like a thing. Like, take arsenic. Glow.
0: (laughs) Better than radium.
1: Better than radium. (laughs) Because that that was where I went to was the radium
0: girls. Yeah. Just licking the paintbrushes. Yeah. Yes. I I think of them every time I wet my thread when I'm sewing. (laughs) When I wet my thread, I was, oh. Yeah. A quote from her during her interview. She said, John Jr. takes up all my time. I haven't any time to read or amuse myself or think about other things. But I don't begrudge him any care. He is a good boy. Yeah. She also- I mean, a
1: newborn will definitely keep you busy, especially when you don't have anything else to do. Yeah, pretty
0: much. She also did a jailhouse new mother photo shoot. As you do. Yep, yep, yep. So there are pictures of her with her newborn baby. And uh, we'll be putting those up on the social media. That's Old Time Crimey Crime on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you want to come. I have a ton of pictures for this one. Because they really got into the pictures during this time period. We get some jailhouse couture, because she's not just wearing the standard, it seems. Mrs. Creighton wore a simple chiffon house dress with one jet ornament, two plain rings, and a modest gold lavalier, black Lyle stockings, and leather pumps with fan-shaped leather buckles. A lavalier is basically like a Y necklace. So, you know, and it generally has a gemstone or a pearl on it. Meanwhile, while she's, you know, modeling in jail, the prosecutors are lining up charges for the elder Mrs. Creighton's death. And the grand jury does come back with an indictment for murder against Mary, not against John. So now they're both indicted for murder of her brother, and only she's indicted for the murder of John's mother. She's got two. He's got one. She's beating him. Yeah, she's winning. Yeah, she's winning. She's absolutely winning. They will be separate trials. The first is for her brother's murder. Separate trials for the different charges, but they're going to be tried together. And they're both looking at the possibility of the death penalty. And they, as for, as for the elder Mr. Creighton, there were no charges filed for his death. They say that no arsenic was found in his organs. She probably figured out a different way to do it that time. <laughs> Maybe. So... Trial number one starts, and people are having a time. This from the Daily News. Mrs. Creighton could more easily be pictured at one of the gay garden parties of her dreams. Her small figure swathed in billowing pink chiffon, and her lusterless but black hair framed with a big drooping leghorn hat. Then as she appeared before a newer court and jury with a sweltering crowd hungry for sensation, the black-garbed defendant, to a charge of murder, premeditated and viciously achieved. And this is June 1923, so it is quite warm. And uh, this, a lot of these articles were from a top crime reporter of the day, Julia Hartman, for the Daily News. And she actually married a fellow journalist. I I just did a little bit of digging on her. There wasn't a lot out there about her. But the Daily News did tend to frequently have female journalists in charge of crime. Which is awesome. Absolutely awesome. (laughs) We're continuing their legacy. We are. (laughs) Hire us, New York Daily News. Yeah, right? We'll work with Mara Bobson. And the public is having a grand old time, too. They are packed into the aisles, pressed against the walls. Like, it is standing room only. You can imagine this in June. Like, that is... Standing room only in June is hot and sticky, and you're touching people, and that sounds awful. It sounds terrible. Yes. Ugh. So the prosecution starts putting on its case, and we get some forensics. Now, there were 140 milligrams of arsenic trioxide found in Charles' organs through the autopsy and the subsequent toxicological analysis, and none of the family doctor's prescriptions were written for arsenic or anything containing arsenic.
1: I thought I saw somewhere, and now there was a lot of bad reporting in here too, Like, a lot of bad reporting, because I actually had his name wrong in my notes, because I found a different article that was calling him Raymond.
0: Well, his middle name was Raymond, yeah. Oh, okay. I saw that a lot, too. Because I
1: was really confused by that. Um, But they said that he suffered from consumption.
0: Yes, yes, I saw that in one place, too. So, well, I think if you suffer from consumption, if you're suffering from anything, probably any attempt to poison you going to need less. Yeah, you'd think. (laughs) So 140 milligrams, and the prosecution and the defense are actually arguing about whether that's a lethal dose. The prosecution says, of course, yes. The defense says 2,000 or nothing. 2,000 or nothing. 2,000 is the bare minimum lethal dose of arsenic. Modern medical knowledge that I, I gained via Wikipedia puts it at 70 to 200 milligrams Although a cursory glance at some research papers I did found one touting a woman who survived a dose of 9,000 milligrams. Wow.
1: She probably was taking a lot of those wafers for her complexion and building up a pretty
0: high tolerance. (laughs) Yeah. The deputy county physician testified about redness and inflammation found in the stomach and intestines. And when asked what he would attribute that to, he said, quote, to a poison.
1: Now, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if she wasn't offsetting the arsenic. So, for the mother-in-law, we have a lot of arsenic. The father-in-law has no arsenic. And then the brother only has some arsenic. So, I wonder if she wasn't, like, experimenting with different things she could use to poison her family members to, to get their life insurance or get them out of the way. Because you said the dog also didn't have any arsenic. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they weren't poisoned, but I'm wondering if she wasn't being very creative. It's
0: possible. With her her poisoning methods. Because we don't know that they tested for anything else. They simply said no arsenic was found, and they seemed to kind of laser in on that. And later on, way down the line, we do have her actually literally bargain shopping for arsenic. Yeah. So.
1: So, like, I'm not really, I don't know how to feel about it, like... Did she poison the mother-in-law? Oh, I'm quite certain. Yeah. Did she poison the father-in-law? Maybe. Maybe. I'm, I'm leaning towards yes, but I'm also on a maybe because maybe she didn't hate him and let him live
0: and then he just died of separate things. It also could just be that they botched the testing.
1: Very well could be, yes.
0: So a lot of possibilities there. So, yeah, they're talking about the arsenic. They're talking about the chemical analysis of Charles' organs. And Helen actually faints when they get to that part.
1: Drama queen. Yes.
0: So, Mary's sister, Helen, there for the testimony, but can't handle that. So, well, imagine going to your sister's murder trial for uh, your brother's death. Yeah, I guess. Also, fainting tends to run in this family because we're, we're about to see Mary just faint all over the place. She's fainting left. She's fainting right. That's fair. But, like, I'm also... People don't really
1: faint anymore, and so in all these old-timey stories that we tell, there's a lot of
0: fainting happening. I think we've talked about this before, and we chalked it up to everybody's dehydrated. I know. I just, (laughs) it's still just weird. I don't know. I did, I did once know somebody who, when she got either overexcited or overheated, she would just pass right out. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, it was a specific disorder. I don't remember what it was called because this was like more than a decade ago that I knew her. But I was at a party with her once and she just, it was very warm in the room and she was sitting next to me on the couch and she just slumped right into me. (laughs) Just all of a sudden. party, (laughs) Yeah. I was like, somebody's had one too many. (laughs) Yeah. Like I would be sitting there like roofie. Did somebody (laughs) roofie this girl? So, you know, maybe it could be something like that where they just tend to faint. Fair enough. And it, this would be a stressful, overexcited, and very sweltering time. Yeah, very warm courtroom, I guess. Yeah. So, as for uh, motive, you know, obviously it's money, but they've got to show some, some proof. The prosecution tells the court that uh, Mary and John had spent over $5,000 in one year. That's 81000 today. The Daily News notes that it's, quote, far from the earning power of the pale-faced often laughing, man on trial. So we get a little bit of uh, of his demeanor there. He's pale but laughing. Maybe it's a nervous laugh. Who knows? Probably. I feel like he's a very nervous guy. Yeah, it feels that way. Yeah. Their insurance agent also testifies that Charles had changed his policy on June 1st, 1922, so a little under a year prior to his death, he had had an endowment and he changed it to a life insurance policy. So an endowment either is paid out at the end of a specific contract term or when the insured party dies, as opposed to life insurance, which obviously is only the second one, Mm -hmm. only upon death. Both of them were worth the same. He didn't change the amount. It was $1,000, but Mary was his beneficiary. As for her demeanor... She only showed emotion on the first day when the DA finished up with a request for a guilty verdict for first-degree murder. And again, from the Daily News, my my girl Julia, the blood pounded darkly beneath the skin of her throat. A throat that is ivory-colored. It's clunky, but... (laughs) Yeah. Maybe she was rushed. Not her best work. Agreed. At one point, a... Okay. Shit gets funny in the courtroom now. (laughs) Let's get weird. Yeah. A doctor who did the toxicology is testifying. He's getting way too technical for the room. And apparently it's just uproarious. From the Daily News again, the situation was comic, and the defendants enjoyed the bantering no less than the audience, which had no more vital interest in the testimony than if they were attending a circus rather than a life drama. So the defense team is a Colonel Vickers and also a former judge. So pretty prestigious. But Colonel Vickers seemed to really draw in the laughs. Okay, so he had to stop actually cross-examining to go look at some medical books to find some information he didn't have offhand. And he said, I have to rely on others. I don't know anything about this thing I'm talking about. Reassuring. Yeah. When you're the defendant. And then the prosecution kept interrupting him, probably with objections, when he was questioning witnesses. And he said, I'm having an awful hard time without interruption. (laughs) He's just struggling up there. He's on the struggle bus.
1: And that's okay. He's admitting that he's on the struggle bus. It's okay to admit that, yeah. Yeah, I'm good with that. It's just like if you're at work and somebody asks you something you don't know, let me find out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I went to law school, not medical school.
0: Give me a moment. Let me catch up. He can't possibly know everything, you know? And so props to him for going and looking it up. Yeah, I mean, really, none of us can. Yeah, nobody can. We're all learning new things all the time. Every damn day. hmm So there are some questions directed towards the mortician who did the embalming of Mr. and Mrs. Creighton and that of Charles. There's some implication that the Creightons might have asked him to do the embalming after the death of Charles that he wasn't supposed to do. He admitted that he was their personal friend, but denied that any such request had been made. He was like, nope, they didn't ask me to do anything untoward. He also said that he only made one incision to embalm Charles, but other doctors who handled the body for the autopsy and such... They said they found five post-mortem incisions. One in the neck, one in the inner side of the right forearm, and three in the abdomen. Never got a solution to that mystery. If you have any theories, I'm open.
1: Say, okay, he, he embalmed and then they had somebody else come in and re-embalm
0: and just say it wasn't done yet. Maybe. I have this kind of off-the-wall idea that just occurred to me that maybe he's lying and it could be an attempt to, to sow reasonable doubt. Ooh. If he made five incisions, and then he says he only made one, that implies some sort of tampering went on with the body. And so the jury would be like, but what about the incisions? Now I have doubt. Oh, that is a good theory. I like it. It does imply that he's very smart. <laughs> well, I mean,
1: he, he's a doctor. Well, he's a mortician. But, yeah, I, I would think that maybe he's just a clever clot.
0: Clever clot? What is, what, is, what is happening?
1: I, Peppa Pig.
0: <laughs> oh, okay.
1: <laughs> I actually, I just had to Google this because okay. I always thought Peppa Pig said clever clots, but it's a clever clogs. So my apology. <laughs> and it sounds like clots to me. But anyway, so it's clever clogs, and it means a person that is really smart, irritatingly so.
0: So like, oh, well, aren't you a clever clogs? Like a know-it-all.
1: Yes, but it's usually said like it's a compliment unless you say it sarcastically, in which case it's an it's then an insult.
0: Okay. All right. So a lot depends on tone there.
1: Yeah. So my apology, clever clogs. Okay. <laughs> Not up on my British slang. It, that is very possible, though. I like that theory a lot that he, he fibbed just to plant seeds of doubt. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I like that theory. Let's go with that. Yeah, and
0: he's their friend, so, you know, he has a reason. Okay, good. Mystery solved. Old-timey-crimey, is on the case again. So the family doctor testified that right after her brother died, Mary asked him if he thought maybe the death was due to some secret love affair Charles was having. Oh, that, that's, that must be what it is. That's definitely it, for sure. Then comes some testimony from the neighbors who I'm sure were happy to get on the stand and get chatty. And I'm really hoping that Julia Hartman had the day off and somebody else wrote this lead because this particular article had no byline and she tended to be bylined. So I'm thinking that maybe she just did the exciting days of court. And so somebody else took this one where they described one of the neighbors. An emaciated woman with sallow skin stretched tightly over prominent cheekbones and sagging into hollows around a narrow, straight-lipped mouth was the star witness of the state of New Jersey. Uh, So yes, that was a neighbor, not Skeletor, as you might have mistakenly thought from that description. So Helen, Mary's sister, also testified about the letter she got from Mary telling her about the illness. Charles's illness, and the paper noted that they did not meet eyes once; they would not meet each other's gaze, and she is uh, described as the wan and juvenile sister.
1: Oh, that's lovely.
0: Yeah, this is not this is not my my girl Julia. Yeah, <laughs> this is some other weirdo. The
1: pasty younger sister. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. People who were around during the illness, including neighbors, testified that they urged Mary to get another doctor in or a nurse, or have him move to a hospital, or just do something during his illness. But she was very lackadaisical about it and highly resistant to any suggestions. She just said, she would have said, no, Dr. Boyle, he said it's going to be fine, and we don't need a nurse, we don't need the hospital. He'll be good after a few days. Yeah. This will all be over. This will all be over. And uh, that one neighbor, Skeletor, her son, testified that the day of Charles' death, he asked Mary, he being Charles, asked Mary for a drink of water, and she refused. Which is kind of damning, paired with the doctors who testified and said that drinking water would slow the effects of the arsenic. So she was trying to make it over faster. There you go. No water for you. I mean, imagine being sick. And with the arsenic comes a lot of nausea and vomiting and water. <sighs> Just give him water. He also testified that neighbor's son that about a half an hour before her brother died, he heard Mary laughing merrily. Creepy. Yeah. Now, it. Didn't seem like the state had anything on how, when, or by whom the arsenic was given to Charles. They ran with the very vague theory that Mary did it. John aided and abetted somehow, but they didn't really give any evidence to prove that. They don't even have any record of the Fowler's solution being purchased anywhere and who it was purchased by. So they, they don't have a lot of the, the how and the who. Or evidence. Really? I mean, the, the arsenic in the stomach. But then you've got two people on trial, and if one of them did it or both of them did it, you don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, the paper tangled this in front of me. They hinted, as the state closed its case, that Mary would take the stand in her own defense. That's and, usually a bad call. Well, <laughs> she, she didn't make that bad call. She didn't. They actually went with uh, kind of the strategy of if you stay really, really still, maybe the jury won't see you. They actually stood up, said no defense, and sat down. They presented no witnesses whatsoever to counter any of the state's claims. And uh, the Daily News put it that they were flinging the challenge of no defense into the teeth of fate. Oh, my girl Julia's back! There you go. She probably just had an off week. Yeah. So, the closing arguments. The defense basically said that the prosecution's case is so flimsy that we don't even need to defend ourselves. It's just... This isn't even worth our time. Essentially. It's a gamble. It's a serious gamble. They really are flinging... (laughs) Hit into the teeth of fate.
1: It's not even worth our time to defend this absurdity.
0: (laughs) Hmm. I won't even dignify it with a response.
1: That's exactly what they're doing. I'm not even going to dignify this with a response. So, I mean, I guess good on them, but wow, are you rolling the dice, man. It is ballsy.
0: The prosecution says that uh, the defense didn't present anything because the defendants were too scared to take the stand and have their guilt made obvious. The jury deliberates for 52 minutes. That's like a record for us. <laughs> right? A record in longest deliberation. Yeah. And they returned with a verdict of not guilty. There was a brief cheer from the packed courtroom, and then both John and Mary fainted.
1: So much fainting.
0: Just swooning all over. The price Helen didn't faint too. Helen did faint at one point. No, but like at the same time. Oh, at the same time. Okay. Yeah, yeah that would have been That would have been way too comical. <laughs> so, he's let free, but she still has that other murder charge hanging over her head as well as the charge of obtaining goods under false pretenses. And so she's taken back to the house of detention. Her suite. Her suite at the house of detention, where her babe awaits. Everyone thought that if she was acquitted in the first trial then there would be no second one because it was kind of assumed that the evidence in the first case in the murder of charles was much stronger than the ev- evidence in the case of her murder of the murder of her mother-in-law and just a side note that when asked what he was going to do now john said he was never going to go back to his family home ever again because he was super pissed at all of his neighbors yeah yeah i mean that's fair i get it So, Mary was acquitted of her brother's murder on June 22nd, and then the trial for her mother-in-law's murder began two and a half weeks later. Same prosecutor, same defense team, same courtroom, probably the same judge. Hopefully a different jury. (laughs) Hopefully. And, of course, she wore all black, quote, which is appropriate to her dark complexion and immovable expression. Jury selection, they did pick a new jury, took about half an hour. Yeah, neither side asked any questions of the jurors that ended up impaneled.
1: Do you you want to be a juror? All right, you're in.
0: Yeah, pretty much. That was pretty much it. Yeah. Do you want to? Okay. All right, go. You're here. You're in. Yeah, really weird. It's almost like everybody's phoning it in on the second trial in a way, and some, especially with the jury selection.
1: We just did this. Just get it in the box.
0: Because a lot of cases are made or broken with jury selection. Yeah. The case starts out pretty weak on the prosecution side. The deputy county physician under cross-examination said that, quote, without knowing the history of the case, he would not necessarily have concluded that the death was due to arsenical poisoning. But by day two... The Daily News says the evidence here might be even stronger than it was in the murder trial for Charles' death. There are accounts of Mrs. Creighton's death and the illness leading up to it. According to Mary, she was ill due to bad pork. But Mrs. Creighton told her brother that she got sick right after drinking some cocoa prepared by Mary. Cocoa chocolate pudding. Seems to be a thing. Yeah, yeah, the chocolate seems to be popping up a lot here. It probably helps mask the flavor. Yeah. A neighbor told the court that when Mrs. Creighton was drinking the cocoa, she turned to Mary and said, What in the world did you put in this cocoa? It's making me sick. Mary replied, You shouldn't say anything like that. I drank some of the same cocoa and it didn't make me sick. She was ill enough that they called in the doctor, who recommended that they have a nurse watch her overnight. But the next day, she seemed to perk up and was laughing. She was having a great time. She was looking forward to her recovery. Everybody went down to breakfast, but Mary insisted on staying with her mother-in-law. And then we have the testimony of a nurse who was attending Mrs. Creighton in her illness. So this is that morning. And that's Mrs. Morris is the nurse. Mrs. Morris said she returned to the patient's room, arranged her comfortably. Mrs. Creighton Sr. was then resting comfortably. The defendant then came to the room and the nurse left for about five or ten minutes. When she returned to the room with the coffee, she said she found the elder Mrs. Creighton choking, her vocal cords paralyzed, and a very frightened expression on her face. I set the coffee down and rushed to my patient and said, What has happened? Mrs. Morris testified. There wasn't a murmur. The defendant sat beside the bed and said nothing. She had not called me when she saw the sudden change. I spoke to my patient and she could not answer. She was conscious, but her throat was apparently paralyzed. Must have been a big fat dose in whatever she gave her mother-in-law that morning. Yeah. Within a few hours of that, Mrs. Creighton was dead. The nurse also talked about some of the aftermath of the death. Mrs. Creighton's cousin gave the nurse some silk clothing, like a silk dress, that they wanted to dress the corpse in. The silk clothing disappeared. The house was searched, and uh, they found them in Mary's room. She had been having a little fashion show.
1: It was just a pretty dress. I figured she
0: didn't even need it. I mean, I have the right to look pretty if I want to. It looks better on me than it would look on her anyway. Exactly. I'm going to wear this so much better. We also have some neighbors testifying about Mary's general behavior and her attitude after the death. Was it the same neighbors that testified in the last one? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of them, yes. So she implied to one neighbor that her mother-in-law had taken the poison herself, and to another that the death was due to tomein poisoning from eating lobster salad and ice cream. Hopefully not together, but after looking at old recipes... Maybe. uh, Probably. (laughs) It was probably lobster salad ice cream. Yum. Another neighbor testified as to telling Mary, this is a weird conversation, that she was an attractive woman, to which Mary replied, Yes, that's what people think, but they little know the truth. They don't know what goes on inside. She said, Mrs. Fanning added, that her mother-in-law had interfered with her rearing of her little girl. Hmm. So Ruth's upbringing... Apparently, Mary felt that uh, her mother-in-law was getting a little too involved with it. Stepping on her toes. Yeah. Multiple doctors testified regarding the chemical analysis of Mrs. Creighton and said that they found arsenic in her organs and believed she died of arsenical poisoning. The defense says Mary will not be taking the stand once again, but at least they bring in some witnesses this time. They try a little. (laughs) Yeah. But they don't actually try to counter any of the testimony brought by neighbors and the nurse and such because, again, they say the state's case is so weak that there's no need to bother. So they're just bringing in, like, a toxicologist and such. So it's a toxicologist from Bellevue Hospital who says he only found in the stomach four to five tiny infinitesimal crystals. And that counters the prosecution's claim that there was 23 milligrams of arsenic. Jury deliberation this time is three and a half hours. Wow. They're busting our records, Amber. They are already. (laughs) And so here we go. Here's the account of what happened when they came back. Her swarthy face was corpse-hued in the pallid light of the crowded courtroom. Her pretty head swung drunkenly on on the slender throat. She did not hear the foreman's, Not guilty! She had fainted when the clerk asked, What is your verdict? They carried her out, a dead weight. As they took her up the stairs to the barred room where she had spent many hours between court sessions, a wild shriek floated back to startle the crowds, still sitting silent and motionless as the moon. As soon as his wife was revived, John Creighton rushed up the stairs to her. Here we have a serious, serious drama scene. It's They're reunited and it feels so good. He folded her small, plump figure in his arms and kissed her repeatedly. (laughs) Hamper's eyebrows just went up. Small, plump.
1: It's just, I don't know, it's weird. They also
0: love calling women plump. Yes. She clung to his hand with both of hers, murmuring, You don't know. You don't know. From the street outside came the ludicrous strains of a hurdy-gurdy.
1: (laughs) Hurdy-gurdy.
0: John Creighton released his wife and, leaning back with a finger tapping the collar of his white shirt grinned and said, It's a good thing you were acquitted because this is the last clean shirt I've got. I'm afraid someone else will have to do your washing for a while, John, said the woman, just recovered from her fright of death. It's just so... (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're acquitted so you can come home and do the washing. (laughs) Thank goodness, I don't have any clean clothes. (laughs) That laundry is piling up and... I don't know what to do about that. I've been out of underwear for three days. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Also, on being revived, she was warmly congratulated by a host of friends and neighbors. And so the judge was letting her go out on parole because there's still that last charge of the obtaining goods. That, by the way, found nothing on that ever again. I think they just let her go. They were just like, well, if we can't get her on murder charges, we certainly aren't going to get a guilty on her ordering goods under another name and then not taking them. Yeah, the judge was
1: probably like, stop wasting my time with this. You guys don't have enough evidence. Just stop.
0: After the acquittal, she was asked about how she felt towards the people who had testified. Like, for instance, her neighbors, John's family. Yeah. I won't say anything about those people who testified against me. They are John's relatives, and out of respect to him, I won't say anything about them. John then said, oh, don't mind me, say anything you like. The same article also called him her simple young husband. Oh. They get their barbs in. She said in an interview the next day, you can tell the world I'm happy. She says she fainted because when the verdict was read out, all she heard was guilty. Maybe something psychological working there. This episode is sponsored by Best
1: Fiends. It's going to be such a crazy busy holiday season.
0: Cooking, shopping, family. I know I'm gonna need a break from all that merry merry holiday action. Everybody knows what match three
1: puzzle game we like to play when it's time for a break. Best
0: Best Fiends. Fiends. Anyone can play Best Fiends and it's so much better than the same old puzzle games. You've got new events and challenges, adorable characters to upgrade, and over 7,000 levels! Did I just hear the magic word? Yes, you did! It's level check time! I am at level 2790! I am at level 5287! Wow! <laughs> <laughs> my current goal is to get all my characters maxed out, And I'm getting pretty close. I might even have them all fully upgraded by 2022. And
1: I just found out that you could max characters out. (laughs) I can't wait to see what the Best Fiends gang has in store for the holiday season. So download Best Fiends
0: free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So it was pretty quiet on their front until December of that year. That was still 1923. When the papers say that the Creighton family is heading west, destination unknown to start fresh. But they actually just went to Boston for a little bit. John couldn't find a job there. So they went back to Long Island and stayed with friends there. And then they ended up in Baldwin in Nassau County. Then there's nothing really heard of them for years until 1935. It's over a dozen years after the two trials. They're living in Long Island. John Creighton is now making $166 per month and paying rent of $42.50 per month for a four-room bungalow. That's about $3,300 a month in wages and $856 in rent. So there you have that. The Creighton family had made close friends with another family, the Applegates. Everett, aka Appy, he's 36, his wife Ada, 34, and their daughter, Agnes, who was in her teens. Ada was pretty much confined to bed. She weighed 280 pounds, and really, she wasn't a people person. She didn't like leaving the house, so she was just like, I'm just going to stay in bed forever, forever. And as far as not being a people person, the people didn't like her very much either. The neighbors disliked her, and so did her own husband, who was once heard saying he, quote, couldn't stand the sight of her, end quote. And uh, that seemed to be mutual, as there were frequent screaming fights reported by the neighbors. They lived in his in-law's house, and he wasn't getting along too well with them either, ever it was, or wasn't. So maybe that's why he turned to his good buddy he'd met at the American Legion, John Creighton, when he was in need of some new digs for the family. John Creighton said, why not move in with my family? Just toss us some money every month to help out. And Everett said, sure, sounds great. So in November 1934, the Applegate family moved in with the Creightons. The Craytons are still a family of four. John Jr. is now 12. Little Ruth had just turned 15 the previous month. And this is a house for a family of four. It is four rooms. And now we're bringing in three more people. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems like everything kind of went okay, if, if hectic at first. John Jr., for instance, slept wherever he could find a spot, and that tended to be on the front porch. Yeah. In the winter in in Long Island. Hopefully a covered porch at least. I hope at least, but that's still going to be chilly.
1: Yeah, but he was just trying to carve out a place for himself, and that was what was left. Pretty
0: much, yeah. Ruth and Agnes made friends, and they were uh, tended to share the attic. There was no heat or running water up there, but at least it was, you know, a place to themselves. So, you have two families living together. There's, uh, there's not always going to be some intermingling, but in this case, there definitely is going to be some intermingling. Yes. Oh, it was an enclosed porch. I did have that in my house. Oh, okay. Enclosed porch, at
1: least. But that's still, I mean... The girls didn't have heat either. Yeah, so it was just really. like, if you're a kid, you're not going to have any heat. Good luck.
0: Yeah. Hope they had some extra blankets. So Mary and Everett started having a relationship in January of 1935. So essentially, the Applegates had lived with the Creightons for about a month and a half.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: pretty much. Really, the nature of this relationship, or even its existence, is sometimes questioned when it is assumed to be a relationship. Sometimes it said it was an actual relationship and sometimes it said that she was coerced so that he wouldn't blab about the murders that she had committed years prior because apparently he knew about that in some accounts.
1: Yeah, and she kept changing her tune with it too because in some instances she'd be like, oh my God, yes, we used to just get in the car and fuck. And then in other cases she's like, nope, never happened, don't know what you're talking about. Wasn't, nope. mm -mm." And then she'd be like, he made me do it.
0: Yeah, she really muddied the waters because she never told the same story twice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in March of that year, 1935, anonymous letters started arriving at the house. They were threatening towards the Applegates. We, I have a couple quotes here. We have you all on the run, and if you don't do as you should with those rats at your place, you should be made miserable too. So they're essentially telling the Craytons to kick the Applegates out. Another quote. Also, the woman with dark hair, his wife, is a big noise and can be heard all over. And those kind are only full of... I think that they were censoring something out here, so I'm going to go with shit. Those kind are only full of shit and wind, but sneaks and cowards at heart. And we can get at her where it hurts, and she will crawl out. And not a comma to be had. No, of course not. That's the Depression. Everything's in short supply, including commas, apparently. And it went on and on that way. There were... So many threatening blurbs in these letters.
1: Well, I like the bit where they are referring to them as rats. I found that to be really interesting.
0: That is interesting, yeah. But I
1: suppose that was probably like common terminology for the time, but especially with like uh, all
0: the things going on, it's a, it's a little telling. It's a little, yeah, yeah. There was some hint in the letters as to the Applegate's race which don't really have anything about that, you know? (laughs) No. And that's something that they generally, if you're not the default pasty white uh, American, you know, born and raised on this soil, the papers tend to note that. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Because the newspapers have that default of, well, everybody is a pasty white American born and raised on this soil, and if you're not, we're going to definitely, possibly put a racial slur in front of your name. By June of that year, in some accounts, again, Everett had started sexually abusing Ruth. This is frequently referred to in many accounts, even some modern ones, as a sexual relationship or that he seduced Ruth, one even called Ruth promiscuous. And I would like to point out that she is 15 and he is in his 30s and there's no consent here. Because she can't. So it is rape. So it gets uh, uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Somehow, Ruth would end up downstairs from the attic in bed with the Applegates. Plural. Mm -hmm. And whether Mary was aware of this was kind of unclear. She later insisted that she knew about it. But also when she told stories differently, she said she didn't know about it. And so, you know, we don't know, but I assume she did. It's a four-room house.
1: Yeah, it's kind of hard to keep secrets in a house that small. Yes,
0: absolutely. I would like to point out the whole 14-year-old and 15-year-old and 30-something. When this becomes a case that is covered by the papers, I found an article about it. And basically across the page was an article... About a 14-year-old who had just married a 32-year-old church organist who just one year prior, so I would like to point out when she was 13, had been accused of abducting her. Mm. But he did manage to eventually secure approval from the church, the law, and her father. Ew. And they got married. And then the article concluded with where they were honeymooning and then where they would reside. Like, it's just a totally normal thing.
1: Ew.
0: Yeah, So back at the Applegate slash Creighton residence, there's apparently Ada slept through all of this going on in her own bed, but I don't think she did. And later there is some discussion of even pictures taken of mm-hmm. both Ada and Ruth in that bed. And even neighbors saw Everett showing Ruth inappropriate affection in the backyard. The whole neighborhood knows about this. Everybody knows. So there's one story that he first raped Ruth in the lighting booth at a rehearsal for a school play and then later she told her mom that that night she quote became a bad girl. Yeah. Yeah. There's another story that this initially started when she was at home, she was the only one awake and he came home late one night, drunk and that happened. At one point, even Agnes was was in the bed. Uh, Ada was in the hospital, and so Agnes slept in her dad's bed with her dad, and apparently also with Ruth. It's, It's horrifying. It's downright horrifying. It's so gross. Yes. So you've got all of this going on. You've got the threatening letters coming in, and everything's getting a little too complicated by the following summer, summer of 1935. And the main complication everybody seemed to focus on was Ada Applegate. We have a couple different reasons. I say a couple, but uh, it's a lot. So possible motivations they might have for wanting to get her out of the way. Number one, Everett wanted a new wife. A young wife. Specifically Ruth. So he needed to off Ada. And in that case, it's said that Mary was actually on board, and it might even have been her idea for the marriage and to also kill Ada. Or she was worried that Ruth would get pregnant and wanted the marriage in order to avoid an unwed mother situation. Or that Mary hated uh, the, the fact that Everett was abusing Ruth. Not because it made her realize that she was a shitty mother, but because she didn't want her neighbors to think badly of her and also felt Everett had betrayed her. Or that Mary may have been worried that Ada, who apparently knew about at least some of Mary's legal troubles in 1923, might hop on the gossip train and ride it to the last station. Yeah. Or... (laughs) Ada was threatening to tell everyone about Ruth, which would cost Everett his job. So a lot, we have a a huge stinking pile of possible motives here. And apparently just a shit ton of tension in the house. So, surprise, surprise, when these two, with so many possible motives, want Ada to just disappear from their lives, she gets sick. Shocking. Yes, I know, right? She ends up in the hospital for more than a week with gastrointestinal distress in August 1935. Then she gets better, and she comes home. And Mary is so gracious and kind as to make her an eggnog before bed. She goes to sleep, wakes up in the middle of the night horribly ill. Then they basically, uh, they being Mary and Everett, force more eggnog down her throat, and by 8.30 a.m., Ada Applegate is dead.
1: Now, I do want to note that at the time, she was taking weight loss pills containing am- amphetamines and had lost 40 pounds, and they were actually thinking that she was ill from
0: the weight loss pills she was taking. Yes, they called them a reducing drug. She was reducing. It's how they put she weight was loss reducing back yes. then. Yes, Cocaine. <laughs> Yeah, basically. So yeah, they they thought that that might be the case. So the doctor actually initially filled out the death certificate with the cause of death being coronary thrombosis occlusion. That was kind of the assumed thing, but something happened. The day before the funeral for Ada Applegate, now I have two different stories here. Somebody dropped some articles onto the desk of the Chief of Detectives, Harold King. Now, one story says that it was a police officer who had actually remembered the case from way back in the day. Another story says, a little bit more complex, it was a bakery delivery driver for the neighborhood who actually kind of had aspirations to be a detective. He'd taken the civil service exam and stuff. And he also had beef with Mary, And had found out about Mary's miraculous acquittals from a neighbor who also had some beef. Because everybody had beef. Everybody had beef. Even,
1: okay, so did you see the bit from Mara Bobson for for this? I just, I'm going to read it verbatim. So this is Mara Bobson with the New York Daily News. And I just thought this was brutal. So I left it in as she wrote it. Clogged arteries seemed like a plausible cause of death for Ada Applegate. The woman was huge, about 250 pounds and unhealthy. She spent most of her days in bed in a Baldwin-L.I. bungalow, rising only to eat or chew out her husband, Everett, for making eyes at other women. Although he told friends he had grown to despise her, Everett was at his wife's side holding her plump form in his arms as she breathed her last. (laughs)
0: Oh, my gosh. I'm like, that is brutal. (laughs) That is brutal.
1: The doctor quickly ruled that the hefty housewife's overworked ticker had finally given up. Hefty housewife. Wow. Mara. (laughs) This was brutal. Wow. So I just left it in as is. I'm like, we had a
0: bad attitude when we wrote this article. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody was uh, feeling quite salty. My. So, yeah. Mary actually kind of might have dug her own grave here if the bakery delivery driver story is true.
1: Mara Boffson had something to say about him, too. All right, so an, an anonymous source. Some believe it was a bread delivery man who was sick of being stiffed by the plump and crabby Creighton. Had sent police a package of yellow newspaper clippings dating back to 1923. So, like, yeah, apparently uh, we are very woman-hating in this, but uh, the the bread delivery man was getting credited for the anonymous
0: tip. And apparently he got word of those articles and the 1923 stuff from that neighbor. Her beef with Mary was because Mary kept on giving her food. That made her sick. Mm hmm. Maybe Mary needs to quit trying to poison everybody. I don't know. That might be a good idea. I don't know. I'm not an expert. So one way or the other, these newspaper articles about the 1923 uh, legal journey that Mary went on were deposited on the desk of Harold King, chief of detectives. So they actually had the funeral halted so that they could take the body for an autopsy. Which was performed by the same toxicologist, Dr. Alexander Gettler, who did the analysis of Mr. and Mrs. Creighton's organs on behalf of the defense back in 1923. Or at least one source had him on the defense. I know at least he analyzed their organs. So that was interesting. He's now a famous toxicologist, according to the papers. So somebody's risen high in 12 years. He found 9.7 grains of arsenic in her organs... And he says that just 3.33 is enough to kill. So three times as much as was needed. The police start doing some questioning. John, Mary, and Everett are all brought in and spent 48 hours at the station. Mary, at one point, said that she needed to get the kids off to school. So, I'll I'll see you later. I'll be back, I promise. I'll come back. The detectives were like, nah, how about we accompany you? Well... We'll just go to your house, keep you company. So they go with her and just hang out while she makes breakfast and gets the kids off to school. Ruth was being questioned and she blurted out that Everett Applegate had been raping her during this questioning. And then she was sent to a children's home for a time. So at that point, they arrest Everett on a charge of criminal assault. And Ruth said... By the way, I wouldn't marry him to save him from all the prisons in the world. Ooh, good
1: job, Ruth. hmm I think Ruth found out that he was also sleeping with her mother. <laughs> she was
0: probably pretty grossed out by that. Yeah. Seems like Mary was the one to really break as far as the murder idea was concerned. She confessed to the police. Although, again, can't tell the same story twice. In some stories, she tells she's the lone figure in the crime. She's the main perpetrator. In some stories, Applegate is participating. It really, the level of culpability and responsibility that she assigns to one or both of them changes with the wind.
1: Yeah, she was a flip-flopper
0: for sure. Yes. In her second confession, she talks about how she went bargain hunting for the arsenic. Just, you know, want to get the best deal possible. It is the depression after all. We have to save our pennies. Yes. Oh, and she also confessed to poisoning her brother. By the way. You already tried her for it. Can't (laughs) do it again. (laughs) Yeah, and the police pretty much assumed from that that, yeah, she must have killed her in-laws. And she naturally later retracts every single confession. That's not what I meant, guys. You weren't listening. (laughs) I said I would kill for my brother. Not, I killed him. They do get Everett Applegate to admit to his abuse of Ruth. Uh, A fact in which he, quote, cheerfully admitted. I hate this man. And he said, yes, he did want to marry her. But still, it was a no on whether he had helped with his wife's murder. Naturally, they are charged and indicted with first-degree murder and they're to be tried together. Now, Nassau County had never convicted a woman of a capital crime. So we'll see if that's going to happen now. This is when the press starts calling Mary the Long Island Borgia or Black-Eyed Borgia, sometimes just Borgia. And they're calling Everett the Legionnaire Lothario. Because he was a veteran who had gone to the American Legion and was involved with that. So that's where they got that wonderful bit of alliteration. You don't like it?
1: Yeah, I I enjoy my alliteration far better, and that's my show notes are titled
0: "Poison and Pedophiles." Oh, there you go. Well, my uh, my notes give away the ending, so I'll I'll tell you later. Okay. So the trial is on in January of nineteen thirty six, and Ruth is actually set to testify. In what the Daily News calls the details of a fantastic sex triangle. That's so... Uh, it's horrible uh, wording. It's horrible wording. I, I know that fantastic, they meant it differently, but it's still... It's just that—that uh, That is not an evergreen tweet. No, and it, it gets
1: worse because at one point he describes uh, his nymphette and his mountainous wife naked in the same bed. Oh, God. What the flying? I
0: can't... I know. I know. The news also says that by doing this, she'll, quote, sacrifice the last shred of her reputation in the hopes of saving her mother, end Mm -hmm. quote. So the prosecution is not calling her in. The defense is. Mary is willing to let her daughter testify as to all of this in court and have it be spread all through the papers and just to save her own skin, to save Mary's skin. So she takes the stand And in questioning, she is forced to tell the details of what Everett did to her. She actually says that it started long before the Applegates came to live with them. This is different from any story that Mary or Everett told. And she even has to tell the court the various places throughout the county where this occurred. They would go driving like a lot, apparently. She says they had both confessed their love for the other, and he'd asked if she would like him better he were single. She does testify that her mother did catch the two of them once. Well, once caught him abusing her. How about that for better phrasing? Yes. And a letter was, okay, Jesus. All right, I can do this. A letter was submitted into evidence. It was uh, written by her to Everett, that letter proved that he kept track of and had knowledge of her periods. Yes. Yeah, and he also had nude
1: pictures of her, which I wonder if it—that's not something he did to make her more
0: agreeable. Blackmail. Yeah, essentially. So yes, uh, that was pretty horrifying. I want when I read that part, I was like, okay, I just want to slam the laptop lid shut and mm. then drive to Antarctica. Mm. Like, (laughs) I just, I don't. No. The assistant district attorney takes the stand. Interesting to have uh, an assistant district attorney on the stand, but this is because Everett Applegate had written him a letter, which the paper said contained, quote, unprintable details of an affair between the war vet and Ruth Creighton, 15-year-old daughter of his co-defendant. I mean, he's just confessing about that left and right. He's proud of it. He's he is. He's proud of it. Ugh. It's so gross. It
1: is so gross.
0: Yes. We have another material witness thing. They've actually kept John locked up as a material witness since October. Uh, that's $2 a day. <sighs> poor John. Man, poor John. Well, we still don't know if he had any part in killing his parents or her brother. We can say poor John with an asterisk on it. So I
1: feel that I don't think he had anything to do with any of it. It honestly. does seem like Mary was pretty active yeah. in the poisoning. Yeah, and, and John, I mean, he's referred to as, as weak, and it seems like he's just completely controlled by his wife and maybe a little dense. And he's just like, I'm just trying to have a normal life. And I work all the time to provide for my family. And I moved our friends in thinking I was being a good guy. And everything I do turns to shit.
0: Yes. (laughs) Everything I touch falls apart. Yes. So he's been in since October. $2 a day. If he's been in for 90 days, then they'll owe him about $3,600 in today's money. So at least he's making a little, little cash. He does testify that the Applegates were their closest friends and testifies as to some enmity between Everett and Ada Applegate, as well as domestic abuse that he witnessed. Quote, He slapped her across the face, pushed her down in the chair, and said she had lied to him ever since they were married. Mrs. Applegate didn't say anything, but she got up and walked out of the room. On the way out, she said, if you ever do anything like that again, I'll tell something I know that will put you where you belong. So he also testified that he saw Everett give Ada the eggnog and that Ada and Mary were the best of friends. So he's still trying to save Mary's skin. Mm-hmm. A neighbor testified, again, we're roping in the neighbors. All right, so here's what happened. Neighbor comes over in the aftermath of Ada's death. The coffin is in the living room. The families were in the kitchen eating dinner. And this neighbor testifies that Everett was already talking about getting remarried. This is basically like the day after his wife has died. Mm -hmm. So I have to tell you before I read her entire quote, because she quotes other people who were present, I'm going to tell you who is present at the dinner table. So you have... Applegate, who is also sometimes referred to as Appy, uh, Ruth, Ruth's father John Creighton, uh, and then the neighbor Margie Harris, who is telling the story, so it's from her point of view, and her daughter Florence is also present. I was really surprised. I said to Mr. Applegate, Well, Appy, if you think about getting married, I think you are crazy. With that, John Creighton said, Well, Appy, if you marry someone with a lot of money, And old with one foot in the grave? Why, that wouldn't be so bad. With that, Applegate turned to me and he said, It would be funny, Margie, if I married someone real young. My daughter turned to Ruth Creighton. Ruth, how old are you? Ruth says, I will be 16 in October. Ruth asked Florence, how old are you? Florence says, I will be 15 in January. With that, Applegate turned to Florence and says... Why, Florence? Are you in circulation? Slap him. Just slap him. Like, for all eternity, just slap him. Slap him, please. Slap him.
1: Now, I do have, right after that, I looked at him and I says, Appy, I am surprised. If you're thinking about marrying anyone that young, I think you are more than crazy.
0: I uh, I do like Margie Harris. (laughs) She's a good witness. Mary finally takes the stand. Third tries the charm. (laughs) I suppose. And this is engineered as a way to send some of the blame Everett's way. But she does admit she knew there was arsenic in the eggnog when she gave it to Ada. She also admits to sending those anonymous threatening letters we talked about. She said she wrote them to get her husband quote, to cease their staying in the house, end quote. And it's confusing because of the pronoun there, but I think that means to, to kick the, the Applegates out. Yes. So it's so funny. She's, okay, so talking about Mary and John's dynamic there, you say that he's so dominated and controlled by Ruth,
1: but... But then she's sending anonymous letters to get him to do something. Yeah, it does Instead
0: doesn't... of just telling him to do it. yeah. It, it seems like maybe, maybe he's not as dominated and, and controlled as we thought. Or as the neighbors thought. Or he needs to be manipulated in some way instead of just told flat out. And so she decided to go about it a little sneakier of a way because, you know, if she's s- sitting in their house where the Applegates are also living and telling him, you need to kick the Applegates out, chances are they're going to hear. Yeah. So there's a couple different possibilities there, but it it is a questionable dynamic and one that I, I can't quite put my finger on. And also, speaking of letters that Mary wrote, the jury was not supposed to hear about the 1923 accusations and charges because of the fact that she was acquitted. But Mary had sent a letter to a crime magazine while in jail trying to get some money in exchange for stories that she would send them about those very murders. So Applegate's lawyer was able to bring that in by reading the letters to the jury, and they were able to question her about it. She dug that one. Yep,
1: dug her own (laughs) grave.
0: Yeah. Everett also takes the stand in his defense. And this is speaking of grave digging. So this is what his lawyers are attempting to do. They're trying to get it so that the jury only convicts on the criminal assault charge and lets him go on the murder. So they're going to have him come up on the stand and talk about how he raped a 15-year-old to the jury. And this seems like Really, t- the most terrible lawyering. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's
1: pretty rough. It's pretty bad. But they might have also been like, there's no way to get him to stop bragging about it. Really? So maybe if we only focus on that, we can get him acquitted from the one that's going to give him the death sentence.
0: Yeah, I think they were, they were grasping at straws for anything they could, they could find. Because they knew that this was not, not going to end up the way they wanted. So they do question him about that, about uh, sexually abusing Ruth. He admits it. He does deny that it started before his family moved in. He says it didn't start until after. He admits that he had slept naked in the bed with Ruth and Ada. He uh, admits that he had taken pictures of Ruth and Ada naked in the bed. So all this stuff, he actually admits to it, and this pretty much made the jury cringe, uh, homicidal. I think it's more like it. And you know what? Of all the things you don't want a jury to be in a capital case, homicidal is number one. You don't want that. It also really pissed off the spectators. I finally got some relief from the horror here because they, they were taking him back to his cell after his uh, testimony. And uh, some of the spectators got loose from the police trying to hold them back. And they managed to get in several punches, Good for them. I was, I was happy about that. His lawyer made his closing statement, essentially, kind of what we said their whole point in putting him on the stand was, a request to send Everett to jail for rape rather than murder. He's just a pervert, guys. Just he's, a, he's just a giant pervert. He's not a murderous pervert. I think he's a pervert. I agree. Mary's lawyer interestingly, tries to make it seem like Mary was just weak-willed and manipulated by Everett. Now we have, we're just escalating in deliberation times here, four hours of deliberation. That is definitely an old-timey, crimey, all-time longest deliberation record. And the jury returns just before 1 a.m. There are 200 spectators in the courtroom. It's pretty much an even split, male and female, I just think we get raked over the coals a lot in the papers for attending trials and such. And so I just wanted to to get that out there. All right. Yeah. And the verdict is finally, and at last, guilty. Again, I say, third tries the charm. Guilty. That's my show notes. That's my title. And then four days later, they're back in the courtroom for the sentencing. And the judge sentences them to death by the electric chair. Mary, immediately after the sentencing, I think while still in the courtroom, writes a letter to her daughter. And also, evidently, the whole world, because it ended up in the New York Times. So, dear Ruth, mother is going away. No matter what has happened to you in your life, be a good girl and look after the best man you will ever have, your father. You and Jackie, that's John Jr., are all that daddy has. Make every effort to help in this trying situation. I love you all. Please pray for me. Lovingly, Mother. And, rather disgustingly, that was not the only letter she received, Ruth. Two elderly men wrote to her, offering their hands in marriage and telling her they would help her forget the whole mess. Mm-hmm. You know what? Send them to the chair as well. So... I'm just kidding. Mostly, kind of, sort of. Not really. Originally, they were scheduled to go, Everett and Mary, to the chair on March 9th, but appeals pushed that back to July 16th. Mary gets incredibly sick. She is totally immobile. She's collapsing. She has no appetite. She's losing weight, and she's not on any reducing drugs. They bring in five doctors to check her out. And they come to the conclusion that there is absolutely nothing physically wrong with her. It's kind of a, a psychosomatic thing. She's just scared to die, and it's, it's affecting her physically. One of the reports, though, is like, if she has
1: lost weight, it's not apparent. <laughs> oh, my God. It's just been
0: bitchiness every which way. I love it. <laughs> my goodness. So there is some thought that maybe she's malingering in an attempt to get out of it, but it doesn't work because there is no evidence of organic disease and thus she can be executed. She converts to Catholicism the day before the execution. And when asked if she has anything to say, she says she was a good wife and mother. God would forgive her for any bad thing she did. And she hopes her husband and children will have a better life than she did. The two of them, they're scheduled for execution on the same day. They get final visits from family, including the children. There's a a note about Agnes and Ruth sitting and, and having some hamburgers in the waiting room. Then at 11 p.m., they bring Mary in. There are 22 witnesses present in the death chamber. And she goes first by the governor's request. I was not sure what to think of that. Is it a chivalrous thing? ladies first does he is he angry at her and wants to deprive her of another another five minutes of life? It is unclear. It is very unclear. She is in a black satin kimono over a pink nightgown and may have in fact been in a coma.
1: Yeah. well, okay, and also this was very weird, so especially with the electric chair um you want to be in thick clothing and they didn't even bother to redress her in appropriate attire. Ooh, I did not know that. Uh, so one of the guards, well, a- after after uh, everything was said and done, one of the, uh, the wardens on duty suffered burns coming into contact with her, releasing her from the chair because she was not wearing thick clothing.
0: Oh, goodness. Ooh, that's a scar that you look at in years to come and just probably cringe, shudder or something, have some sort of physical reaction that's visceral.
1: You know what, though? Like, I feel like a lot of um, first responders, be it police or EMTs or or what have you, end up with a very, uh, like, dark sense of humor because they see so many horrible things. And he very well could have looked at that scar
0: and been like, that was a hell of a night, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. So, yeah, she she might have been in a coma, even. Uh, The doctor's report said she'd been given a hypodermic injection of morphine. She had to be wheeled into the room and then placed in the chair. She was totally silent during the preparation and during the the actual execution. We don't even know if she was aware of what was going on. The Daily News said she was in utter collapse without the slightest sign of life.
1: Somebody was nice enough, though, in her state of perhaps coma, to uh, put some rosary beads in her hands since she had just been baptized, so.
0: Yeah, so she at least, she had that. That was nice of them. And they also, basically everybody who was in the room, as soon as she was wheeled in, the guards, the matrons, the doctors, the men of the cloth, they all closed in around her in a semicircle so that those 22 witnesses couldn't see what was going on. It's either nice or they're trying to hide the fact that they're executing somebody who's in a coma.
1: Yeah, I think it's the second.
0: Honestly. I kind of do think it's the second. Yeah, I, I retract my nice. <laughs> they're, they're not trying to give her dignity, they're trying to hide it.
1: Yeah, they might be like, guys, are, are we allowed to do this since she's not even awake? I, I don't know. Do you think we're. All right, let's just block her from view. Let's just, just in case. I don't know if this is allowed
0: or not, so let's just hide it. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> She is declared dead at 11.04 p.m. Everett is immediately next, like he died five minutes after her. He does have some last words. Before God, gentlemen, I'm absolutely innocent of this crime, and I hope the good God will have mercy on the soul of Marvin W. Littleton. That was the district attorney who was in charge of the prosecution. Everett died at 11.09 p.m. All right, so some aftermath here. Ruth Creighton was sent to the Brooklyn Training School for Girls. She was released in July of either 1937 or 38. It was the same article, had two different dates. Come on, people, get it together. And whoever I'm telling to get it together is long dead, but still. She was released at age 18. She changed her name to Ruth Noble. That's taking a family name in there. And for a little while, she went to Somerville, Massachusetts, where she had an aunt and an uncle. And I believe her family had stayed with them before when she was much younger in the immediate aftermath of the first two trials. But even there, she can't get away from it. People know about the case. So she just goes back to Long Island and starts keeping house for her father and her brother. They had actually been boarding with the prison matron who had guarded Mary... Kind of a weird setup there, but... Whatever. Yeah. And uh, there was a note that her father, a county employee, was delighted with Ruth's housekeeping. <laughs> she got work as a sales girl in a store. She made some friends, and eventually she found love. With George R. Bull, he was a soldier, 22. She tried to give him the full story, but he kind of cut her off, and he said, I know all about it. It doesn't make a bit of difference to me. It's the future that counts. What a good fella. Very sweet. They got married, and Ruth said, It's the first time I've known real happiness. I'm sure it's here to stay. That's so sweet. Yes. I tried to search for her a little further in between then and her death to find more information. I I know you have some stuff. but
1: I, I only have a little bit of stuff um is like they had three kids and i believe one of them did pass uh relatively young because there's no information or maybe the the third one is still alive and maybe that's why there's no information i'm it's it's unclear
0: yeah it it is kind of unclear i did in my search find this poor woman in 1960 some i'm just going to say some asshole <laughs> in a newspaper the daily register out of red bank new jersey wrote a, a little tiny blurb right up about the case. And I'm going to read it to you. Okay. And having just heard the case, you can you can maybe figure out exactly where they go wrong. Ruth Creighton had a lover. His name was Everett Applegate. He also had a fat wife named Ada. Ruth, a dark, stout woman with more curves than the Pennsylvania Railroad at Altoona. Shout out! <laughs> That's a terrible shout out, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Had enormous faith in poison. It was slow and insidious and quite often unsuspected. For practice, Ruth had knocked off a few New Jersey re- relatives and had wept at their funerals. She began to make custard for Ada Applegate. Ada died. The coroner wanted an examination. Everett said his wife had suffered enough. The state did it anyway, and found enough arsenic to decimate a racing stable. Dr. Richard Hoffman, a noted New York psychiatrist, was called in, and he visited the Craytons and smiled at Ruth's 15-year-old daughter. Who gave you the gold ankle bracelet, he said sweetly, Uncle Ev? The resulting explosion showed that Ruth had seduced Everett and Uncle Ev had seduced the child. The lovers died in the electric chair, and there is still a strong feeling that Ruth Creighton committed the crime without consulting Ev. She carried him along to the chair to revenge herself for creating competition in the family. So they put Ruth's name. I, I was going to ask you. <laughs> what did they get wrong, Amber? Mm. What did they get wrong?
1: So now we're blaming an abuse survivor for the murder and then the basically two other people who were found guilty saying, well, it's her fault that they died too.
0: No, no, what they're saying is they're saying Ruth is Mary. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. They, they put Ruth's name in place of Mary. I'm sure it was an accident. I'm sure it wasn't on purpose, but it's still... This woman has survived what she survived. And then in 1960, so 25 years after the fact, her name is now being attached to this case as the principal, as the murderer. Yeah, I thought they were trying to pin the murders
1: on her. Like, she did this and then made her mom and Uncle Ev go to the
0: chair for it. Yeah, it's, it's really weird because you've just heard the case. Yeah. And so now you, you read that and you're like, wait, what the hell? So, yeah. What's even happening? Yeah, I know. Ruth died in Arkansas at age 70 in 1990. I believe you have some more for us on the aftermath and, and what happened to I, some of the people involved.
1: Kind of, kind of. So, uh, a lot of people that were involved obviously don't want to talk about it. Makes sense. Fair enough. So, at the bottom of one of my sources, there was actually uh, like a chat going on with, with people that are alive and current. And uh, a gentleman who is married to the great-granddaughter of Everett. So we found a little bit more about Agnes from Agnes's granddaughter.
0: And Agnes was Everett and Ada's daughter, who was yes. you know, the same age as Ruth, around that age. I think she was like 13.
1: So, so Agnes lived in New York for several years, married a Harold Ackley. They had a daughter, this gentleman's mother-in-law and they stayed in New York. Now, Agnes and her husband, this is likening back to something you had said. They moved for what they claimed were racial issues to Maine.
0: Interesting.
1: So no one knew what happened to Agnes until about 12 years ago, because she never mentioned it, even to her own children. Wow. So this was not something she ever, ever really wanted to talk about.
0: I mean, I really can't blame her, but also imagine finding that out about your mother either as an adult or after she's gone.
1: Well, yeah, and, and so they started trying to to trace her. So they were able to trace her back to 1940 when she was living with her aunt. And it's just really... Even in the, their own family, it, quote, I just think that Agnes cut them off from the others for obvious reasons. So they really wouldn't talk to other family members. Agnes wouldn't talk about her own family. And then some other people started chiming in that were also related to some of of the people in this case. And it really, the last bit I have is Agnes died in Bangor, Maine in 1986. Okay. Uh, Now, I did have a little bit of blurb for John Jr. He did get to grow up, and he got married to a woman named Virginia, And he got a nice long life. He lived to be 85. He passed away uh, in 2009. He lived in Florida with his wife, and she had passed away in 2003. And John Sr. lived until 1983. Yeah, he lived a long life. Doesn't look like he ever got married. He probably learned his lesson
0: the first time. I think so. Didn't take him three tries. (laughs) No. I do have one more thing, because... We've talked about Lucretia Borgia. We haven't covered her on the show. There's there's many historical and and murder podcasts that you can listen to about her because, kind of, it's a question of was she worked up in history as this famous basically serial killer who poisoned the hell out of people, or was that just kind of a slam job? So this will give you some idea of what the public, when Hearing of the case in the day, hearing of the you know Everett and Mary murdering Ada case, when they're calling her Borgia, what they would get from the press as an explanation of who Lucretia Borgia was? The original Borgia, the name applied to Mrs. Mary Frances Creighton, was the beautiful Lucretia, sister of Cesare Borgia, who lived from fourteen seventy nine to fifteen nineteen in what is now Italy. She was a pious and kindly woman but vicious calumnies inspired by her brother's enemies made her out a particularly heartless and wholesale poisoner. As such, she has been dramatized times without number by poets and romanticists, so that today her name is synonymous with the crime for which Mrs. Creighton was put to death. So that gives you some idea of what her contemporaries would perhaps know of and think of Lucretia Borgia in that time. Mm -hmm. So I think that gives it a little bit more perspective than if we sat here and Went back and forth about Lucretia Borgia, which is a whole other episode. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I, have, I have an old timey recipe for you. Oh, no. This won sixth prize in a uh, recipe contest down in Texas. This is Mrs., Miss Johnny Howell of Walnut Springs, Texas. And she gives us the recipe for creamed lamb on toast. And this is from 1935. Amber's just kind of eyes going up to the left, eyes going to the right, head cocking back and forth, just really trying to figure out what's going on here. Is it like the the cream chip beef? It's similar. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Is there jello in it?
0: There is no jello. Oh, thank God. What really drew me to this recipe, I have to say, is not even the recipe, although it sounds kind of gross to me. It's the ending. Okay. Okay. So I I don't know why it was written the way it was written. But it entertained me. Give it to me. Let's go. Okay. So as for ingredients, we have some diced cooked lamb, some crystal pure milk, gold chain flour. We've got lots of brands in here. Paprika, Morton salt, Mrs. Tucker's shortening, grated cheese, and curry powder, as well as toast. Ingredients can be bought at Helpy Selfie. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Melt shortening in the top of your double boiler over boiling water on your Texas Electric Range. Heat milk in another saucepan, but do not boil. Measure the flour, salt, paprika, and curry powder and stir into the melted shortening. When the mixture is thoroughly blended, add the hot milk slowly, stirring constantly. Cook over hot water, stirring constantly to prevent lumps from forming for five minutes. Add the diced lamb and grated cheese, heat, and serve on bread that has been toasted with mistletoe butter. And here comes the grand finale. Serve this some Sunday night with ice-cold ham's beer right from your Nord refrigerator in your dining room made cool with your Texas electric fan plugged in your two-way outlet furnished by the Electric Club of Fort Worth. Conclude this simply served meal with Martha Washington's after-dinner mints. Be sure your table linens are laundered by the Natatorium Laundry. So she
1: got sixth place because she name-dropped a lot. Yeah, she gave had fr- nothing to do
0: with the recipe. So much free advertising. So much. There was so much advertising there. Yeah, yeah. So that is the case of Mary Frances Creighton. I would like to point out that she didn't even
1: she didn't even say if she cooked the lamb. Is it raw lamb that we've just chopped up into cubes?
0: It is uh, diced cooked lamb. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Although that always bothers me in recipes, just completely off the top, well, s- sort of on the topic, but when they have as part of the recipe something needs to be cooked in the ingredients list, <laughs> I feel like that needs to be part of the recipe process. Yeah. Because it is part of the process. I'm going to have to cook this damn lamb. Or do we just assume that everybody has cooked lamb in their fridge? In the, I'm sorry, in their, um, where was the refrigerator reference? Oh yeah, there was definitely a name brand. Well, you know, I'm sure it's, it's also in the two-way outlet Furnished by the electric club of, of Fort Worth. So, yes. So, yeah, I think, I think something weird happened here, but it, that, that's just a little pet peeve of mine. That is uh, the case and the lamb toast. Creamed. Gross. Creamed lamb toast. Does not sound good to me.
1: Poison and pedophiles and creamed lamb toast. What more could you ask for? I ha- <laughs>
0: right? I have to give her a shout out, though, uh, this Miss Johnny Howell of Walnut Springs, Texas, for putting curry powder in. I see so many recipes, as I'm looking at at old-timey recipes, that just have no seasonings. And if they do have seasonings, it's just salt and pepper. And so curry powder, pretty unorthodox for that time and place, gotta say. We have a Patreon shout-out. Welcome to the Patreon. Oh, another one I'm gonna have to say twice, because I, again, did not reach out for pronunciation. (laughs) Maybe I'll just put that in the welcome note. (laughs) Kristen Friddle! Does that sound good,
1: Kristen Friddle? or Friedel? I, don't I know. know.
0: Okay, we'll try Friedel. Kristen Friedel. So there, Kristen. I'm also a Kristen, by the way. We are named twins. I just go by Christy for short. <laughs> Hello. Uh, yeah, that is uh, everything. Um, I already did the social media. Uh, go over to Good Pods, and you can uh, send us a little tip there if you want. Also. You can pay us, fulltimeycrimey at gmail.com. God, I forgot literally everything. It's, I've, we've been at this for almost two hours. So yep. it's,
1: and it's, we are everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, we're there.
0: Do, you, do they listen to podcasts on Twitter and Instagram? I don't know. <laughs> wherever you follow people on social media, as long as it's not TikTok. We're everywhere. <laughs> we are everywhere, except well, for TikTok. Yes. So come find us on social media. And hey... Uh, Those of you who are Spotify listeners should make a playlist of some of your favorite true crime episodes and pick a favorite of our episodes, maybe even this one, and toss it on there. Share that with your friends as well. I have several (laughs) playlists of true crime. Just I wanted to pick out some of my best episodes so I'd be ready when anybody asked me if I had any recommendations. So that. There you go. That's that's as much bullshit as I can possibly remember. Uh my brain is in a puddle on the floor and I'm no more braining today. To, no more braining. No more braining. So, okay. Uh what you doing this week, Amber? I am cleaning
1: my house and uh apparently hosting Thanksgiving's and multiple Thanksgivings. Yeah, doing lots of uh stuff there, I guess. Yeah, I'm mostly cleaning and cooking. That's that's
0: my week. That's that's a holiday week a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to be uh, doing some cleaning, too. We've got family coming in over the weekend. And uh, Hotel Jackson and Christy apparently is opening its doors again. Oh, hooray! For the first time in two years. So, So that should be interesting. We've got the spare room all made up. And that is also the studio in which we are recording. So they will be sleeping right here. Where the magic happens. Where the magic happens. Looking forward to seeing my family, and uh, not looking forward to the cleaning though. That's that's less fun. Nobody ever looks forward to that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to find some good podcasts to listen to to give me that motivation. That helps, you know, yes. or good audiobooks, something like that. I'm, I am also um, finishing up an audiobook that I'm listening to on Scribd. It is The Faithful Executioner: Life, Death, and Honor and Shame in the Turbulent Sixteenth Century by Joel F. Harrington. And we just, we had a funny moment last night because like Jackson and I all listen to the podcast together, but he goes to bed earlier than I do. I stay up a little bit longer. So usually he'll tell me, put on whatever you want when he's going to be going to bed soon. So I was like, oh, I'll put on my, my audio And so he's still there and it, the audiobook starts up and the narrator says, he goes into a little bit about this execution that's happening and then says, but why were the men Cutting up newborn baby hands. <laughs> and I'm like that has to be so jarring for him <laughs> to have that be like... where it starts. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was something. So, so yeah, I've been listening to that, and I've, I've got. I'm going to do some reading too at some point. I'm reading that book right there, little little demon in the city of light by Stephen Levin, 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 Levingston. Jeez, I can't say words. All right. On that note, I'm going to stop saying words. No more words. So. Thank you for listening to our filthy, sometimes garbled, <laughs> jumbled words, which I will have mostly cleaned up in the editing, but I, I don't touch a lot of the stuff after we finish the case. So some of it will remain. <laughs> and uh, we hope you had a wonderful holiday and have a wonderful weekend. Bye. Bye. My sources are casetext.com, Mark Gribben on the Malefactor's Register, An article on Crime Library by Mark Gatto, Murderpedia, and from Newspapers.com, The Daily News, like a lot, and the Times Union. I have Murderpedia, Malice Factor Register,
1: ExecutedToday.com, Facebook, Find a Grave, Genealogy Website, ged.dillahunty.com, and casetext.com.
0: Exactly. You know, he, he... He... Brain, work,
1: words, come, try. (laughs) Words, come, try.
0: Words, come,
1: try. Come at me, bro.